This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry and the destination for creating your own custom engagement ring. Choose from a variety of beyond conflict-free diamonds and other fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals at brilliantearth.com. From now until December 31st, you will receive a complimentary pair of diamond studs with the purchase of two wedding rings. To see terms for this special offer and to shop all Brilliant Earth selections, go to brilliantearth.com slash manliness. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. 18 months after the Declaration of Independence was signed, the Continental Army was on the ropes and the American Revolution was on the verge of being snuffed out. Battered, demoralized, and half-naked, 12,000 American troops marched into a small, poorly supplied encampment in British-occupied Pennsylvania to hunker down for the winter. They called the encampment Valley Forge. Despite the terrible conditions and circumstances there, something happened at Valley Forge that would change the tide of the Revolutionary War and the entire course of history. My guest today is a co-op author of a new book entitled Valley Forge about this historic crucible. His name is Bob Drury, and I had him last on the show to discuss his stellar book, Lucky 666. Today, he explains the dire obstacles General George Washington and the Continental Army were up against at the time of Valley Forge, from coming off a string of strategic defeats to weathering political infighting. He then offers a vivid description of the squalor soldiers lived in at Valley Forge, as well as a rundown of the common myths people have about this historical episode. We end our conversation discussing how the situation at Valley Forge got turned around and why the men who survived this crucible ended up stronger because of it. This show will give you some fresh insights and new appreciation for this pivotal event in American history. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash valleyforge. Bob joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Bob Drury, welcome back to the show. Brett, it's great to be back. Thanks. Uh, I had a Fun time with you when we did Lucky 666 and looking forward to the same for Valley Forge. That's right. So you got a new book out, Valley Forge. Now, this is interesting. It's just like an iconic moment in American revolutionary history. I think all of us have seen the the painting of Washington praying. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But what got you thinking about Valley Forge and writing writing the history of this event uh, in such great detail? Frankly, Brett, it was a family affair, believe it or not. I have a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, he's 21 now, uh, son, Liam Antoine, with a hyphen, and his mother's French. And Liam Antoine has been, he's a dual citizen. He's been bilingual since infancy. He's in University of the UK now. He speaks four different languages. But one day, I guess it was six or seven years ago, he was 13 or 14. We were down at my wife's house outside of Philadelphia for a holiday. I think it was Christmas. And I heard this kerfluffle in the next room, in the TV room. And I went... As I was walking towards it, my son is kind of stomping out. I said, what's wrong, son? And he said, uh, my wife's brother had made a crack about the United States bailing France out of two world wars. And my son shot back at him. Oh, yeah? If it wasn't for the Marquis de Lafayette and the French army, you'd be Canada right now. There wouldn't even be a United States. And not only was I proud of my you know, early teen son for standing up to this 40-year-old man, Brett, it was like a light bulb went off over my head. Lafayette, during the revolution. What a great book. And so I got a hold of my co-author, Tom Clavin. We both agreed. We were just finishing up our Ray Cloud book, The Heart of Everything That Is. And we had already committed to the World War II book, Lucky 666. But Lafayette was in the queue. He was next online. And of course, as we were working on Lucky 666, the inestimable Sarah Val, a terrific writer, she came out with her book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. So, alas, there goes that idea, down the tubes, let's find something else. But Tom stopped me, Tom Clavin, my co-author, and he said, hold on a second, I've just been doing some perfunctory research on Lafayette. What do you know about Valley Forge? And I kind of answered, I don't know, I suppose what most Americans learned in civics class or social studies or eighth grade history, a lot of freezing, half-naked men starving to death, and as you put it, kind of Washington... And all the portraits, he's sitting on a big white horse watching them starve to death. <laughs> and, and Tom said, there, I think there might be a lot more to that winter of 1777, 1778 that meets the eye and that most Americans know about. So by this time, I had done a little research on my own. And this was three Februarys ago, 2015. I made an appointment with the Park Service's Chief Valley Forge historian. 
And Brad, I spent the day with him. I drove to Valley Forge and we did a walking tour for the entire day. And what I learned just in that day, when I got home, I was so excited. I called Clavin and I said, we have a book. We have a book. No one, no American knows the half of what was going on at Valley Forge. So that's how the concept came about, so to speak. <laughs> I love it. So it started with your son. Uh, right, argument right, that's fantastic. Right. Well, He's going to want, in fact, I, you, we used him. You'll see on the book, we, it says uh, contemporaneous materials, materials never used before. We hired my son to go into the French archives and find out some stuff that's been in no other Valley Forge uh, articles or books before. And uh, maybe we could talk about that later, but I just thought that was a, that was a nice aside that we got this French speaking kid to go do our work for us. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So I think for people to understand Valley Forge and its importance, you have to understand what was going on with the war leading up to it. So at what point did you take up the story? We pick it up in August of 1777 with George Washington marching the Continental Army through down Market Street in Philadelphia show force. I'll back up a little bit. What had happened previous to where we begin the book? Washington, as, as you probably know, he was a compromise candidate for the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. All those New England firebrands, John Adams, Sam Adams, James Lavelle, they knew that if they were going to take on the most pow powerful empire in the world, they needed Virginia, the former colony of Virginia, now the state of Virginia, in the fold. It was the most populous state. It was the largest state. It was the richest state. So as a compromise, they plucked George Washington, who had been a successful militia commander fighting alongside the British during the French and Indian War, and they made him commander in chief. Now, this pissed off a lot of people. And John Adams was never really sold on George Washington. In fact, he quipped, the only reason he's commander in chief is because he's the tallest man in any room he walks in. So when Washington... Drove in 76 when Washington drove the British out of Boston, feather in his cap. But then things started to go wrong. He lost New York, the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, the uh, Battle of White Plains, the Battle of Harlem Heights. And he was basically just driven out of New York with his tail between his legs. And the whispers about Washington in Philadelphia, where the Continental Congress was meeting, they started to get a little bit louder. But then Washington quelled that with his surprise attack in 1776 on Trenton and the mop-up duty at Princeton. That kind of bought him some time. But come what they call back then the fighting season of 1777, when General Howe, commander of all British forces in the United States, he was the one who had driven Washington out of New York. He and his brother, Lord Richard Howe, who was in charge of the Royal Navy. They decided to make their move on Philadelphia, which was, of course, the nascent capital of the United States. And throughout that late summer, early fall campaign, General Howe flummoxed Washington, General Washington, at every single turn. There was the Battle of Brandywine Creek, where Washington chose a spot on a creek that was more like a river to try to turn back the British from capturing Philadelphia. And instead, General Howe, ran an all-night flanking maneuver, and he came back, and he almost came back around behind Washington. And if it were only for the covering movements of two of Washington's homegrown generals, Nathaniel Green from Rhode Island and Pennsylvania's own Anthony Wayne, later became known as Mad Dog, if it wasn't for their covering movement, almost suicidal, the Continental Army would have been annihilated or captured. So 10 days after Brandywine Creek, Washington has sent General Wayne with a brigade of American soldiers, shadow the British as they move towards Philadelphia. Maybe you can come, you can relay to me another place where we can attack them. But Wayne made the mistake of staying one night too long in this plateau in the township of Paoli, Pennsylvania. Not far, by the way, from Valley Forge. Howe got wind of Wayne where he was. Local Tories led him there and he ordered a midnight bayonet attack on Wayne's sleeping soldiers. And the general he put in charge no Flint Gray, they called him General Charles Gray, G-R-E-Y. He had ordered his soldiers, A, the reason he got the nickname No Flint, take your flintlocks out of your brown best muskets, this is strictly bayonets, and B, no quarter. Over 200 Americans were massacred. It became known as the Paoli Massacre, massacred in their tents in their sleep. And then finally, shortly after that, 
when Washington tried one last ditch effort to take back Philadelphia at what became known as the Battle of Germantown, he came this close, Brett. They were so close to routing the British. And then at the last minute, this fog rolled in. The American militia started shooting at each other. It was just a mess, a giant mess of friendly fire, which gave the British enough time, gave General Cornwallis enough time to get out of Philadelphia with reinforcements for how. And they turned what looked for sure like it was going to be a continental victory into this rousing route of a retreat. So now Washington's over three. And the whisper, of course, when the British took Philadelphia, the Continental Congress, such as they were, abandoned the city. Now, most of them went back to their, their own uh, districts, but a small quorum at, at any one point between 18 and 23 delegates took over the courthouse in the inland Philadelphia town of York. And now the whispers that I spoke about about Washington, they're, they're a full-blown roar. John Adams wants him out. Dr. Benjamin Rush, uh, Pennsylvania surgeon, very respected man, signer of the Declaration of Independence. He writes an anonymous screed calling Washington a full-blown dictator with no military skills. Now, this, of course, has turned into a pamphlet. It's circulated up and down the East Coast through all the colonies. Patrick Henry, as a matter of fact, he saw the original. And he writes to Washington. He said, this is Benjamin Rush's handwriting. I just want you to know the kind of statesman, the kind of heavy hitters you're up against who want you out. And Washington, oddly enough, he was a great militia commander and infantry commander, but he knew nothing about cavalry tactics or about, uh, about military engineering or about artillery. So when he was named commander in chief, he ran out and bought all these books about how does this work? So now he was not only learning how to be a military commander, he was learning how to be a savvy politician. If the knives are out for me, I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn the situation around and make the knives out for them. So what he did was he didn't respond to Rush right away. Instead, he asked Congress in York, the delegates who were there, can you send a commission out here on an inspection tour? I want you to see what's happening out here. And when the five delegates who eventually arrived at Valley Forge saw the condition of the army, Brett, when I'm saying naked or half naked, I'm not talking metaphorically. Foreign officers who came to Valley Forge to either volunteer to fight for the Americans or to observe were shocked to see continental sentries naked under a ratty blanket, barefoot, standing on their hats in the snow or the freezing mud. I mean, this army was on the, on the verge, as Washington wrote to Congress, of starving, dissolving, or dispersing. When these five delegates reached Valley Forge, they were so embarrassed, they started taking off their own shoes and handing them to soldiers. So now... Washington starts manipulating what came to be known as the camp committee, these five delegates. And without them really knowing it, they're putting into action everything that Washington wants. Every day he sends over one of his young aides, perhaps two, John Lawrence, Alexander Hamilton, and cajoling and kind of putting into mind, oh God, we need food. Washington's not an autocrat. He's the only thing keeping this army together, which in fact was true. So it was almost like the tail started wagging the dog. The five delegates of the camp committee began wagging the dog of the Continental Congress back in York. And Washington was so close to turning things around when, I don't know if you want to talk about Saratoga, but as all these losses were piling up during the Pennsylvania campaign, Brandywine Creek, Paoli, Germantown, up in a little hamlet in upstate New York, the hamlet of Saratoga, the American general Horatio Gates defeats the British general, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, captures 5,000 redcoats and Hessians, including 23 generals. Now Gates, of course, he's hailed by the John Adams clique. This is the man to replace Washington. Now Gates was fine with that. He was a political animal. He was, a, he was British born. He had fought for the British during the French and Indian War. And after the British won that war, he had settled in the States on an estate of Virginia. And when the rebellion broke out, the American rebellion broke out, Gates cast his lot with the colonies, which were now states. He went to Boston. He expected to be named commander-in-chief and was quite peeved when Washington was chosen as the compromise candidate. Gates considered Washington middle gentry, fox-hunting Virginian, a country bumpkin, more or less. So now Gates sees his chance, and he takes lodging in York, and he begins lobbying the delegates there. I'm your man. Make me commander-in-chief. But because there were so few congressmen in York, 
They could not get a majority. So they did the next best thing. They gifted General Gates by making him president of the Board of War. Now, previously, the American Board of War had been kind of a bureaucratic political position. You know, what are we going to do with the POWs? How are we going to get wagon wheels made? Where are we going to purchase our arms? But Gates turns it around and suddenly he's giving orders to the field. You don't do this. That's way out of line. It was public slap in the face to Washington. And the denouement came when Gates named his friend, the Irish-born French officer Thomas Conway, as inspector general of the Continental Army. This was way out of league. Washington was the only man to name his. He was, it was in protocol that the commander in chief names the inspector general, not some president of the board of war. But Washington once again takes this very public slap in the face with equanimity. And he knows what Gates doesn't know, what Adams doesn't know, what none of the New England faction know is that without his physical and emotional presence at Valley Forge, this army, this continental army of ours would fall apart. And suddenly the delegates out at the camp committee that went to Valley Forge, they're starting to realize this too. It's only Washington's preternatural sense of will. It's only the loyalty that these soldiers have to their commander in chief that is keeping this army together. Now, don't get me wrong. There were plenty, there were scores, hundreds of desertions, men just saying, we, we can't take this anymore. Albigens, well, some of the diaries and and journals we read, Brett, I remember it was Joseph Plum Martin. He was like the zealot of the revolution. He was everywhere. And at one point he wrote in his diary, oh yes, I think it was Thanksgiving. The Continental Congress had declared a day of Thanksgiving for Gates' victory at Saratoga. And he said, oh, we were served a hearty lamb stew with onions and carrots and cabbage and hickory nuts. Without the lamb stew, the onions, the carrots, the cabbage, or the hickory nuts, instead they were issued a gill of vinegar to ward off scurvy and a gill of rice. I mean, this army was in bad shape, and the delegates at Valley Forge are beginning to realize only Washington can keep this army together. That was a very long-winded answer to your question, and I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a great story. So, so basically, they, they were they were hunkering down in Valley Forge for the winter after these defeats at Brandywine in Germantown. This is in Pennsylvania. So th- this raises the question, why were things so bad? Why, why were there men who were naked, no shoes, in the winter during Valley, Valley Forge? Just as the nascent United States did not know how to set up a, an army, we had no clue how to put an army together. In fact, most of the congressmen did not want a standing army. They thought they could they could defeat the greatest the greatest empire on earth militarily with uh, a bunch of disparate militiamen, you know, second sons and farmers and miners and shoemakers and and finally they were disabused of that notion during the New York campaign where the British just rolled up the Americans. So just as they did not know how to create an army from scratch, they didn't know how to create a supply system from scratch. There was a general, General Mifflin, was in charge of the supply line, but everybody working below him, buyers, teamsters, they were all civilians and they were corrupt as hell. And even when there was, we have bushels of wheat, we have corn, we have whatever they had, the Continental Army had no wagons. There were maybe 16 wagons for the 12,000 men at Valley Forge. So they couldn't get the food there. And Washington... One of his dictates to the camp committee, the five delegates at Valley Forge, was we must totally restructure the supply stem of this army. And of course, they agreed with him. And eventually, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but General Green, who was just a great character in the book, he was, Washington had designated General Green. And when these guys are so young, Brett, Green was in his mid-30s. Anthony Wayne was in his mid-30s. Lafayette was 19 when he introduced himself to Washington. Hamilton was 22. Lawrence was 20. John Lawrence, the, by the way, the founding father you'd never heard of. John Lawrence was 23. But Washington has de- had designated General Green as his successor, as commander in chief, should he fall in battle. And when Washington went to Green and said, I need your organizational skills, please take over the supply line. Green didn't want to. He wanted battlefield honors. As he put it, no one in history ever heard of a supply general. He only heard of battling generals, but for the good of the country, for the good of the army, for the good of his great good friend, George Washington, he did it. And eventually, not yet, February was the cruelest, cruelest month at Valley Forge. But eventually, by the time that army marched out of Valley Forge, Green had set up all these depots for the horses. The horses 
were dropping dead where they stood of starvation. And we didn't talk about a couple of the myths. And now that I'm onto the horses, do you mind? Let's talk about some of the myths. Two of the things I found out that day when I did my tour of Valley Forge, my very first tour, were the myths of, oh, freezing winter, Washington's bad luck, the coldest winter ever. It wasn't, Brett. In fact, it was one of the mildest winters ever recorded in southeastern Pennsylvania. But what would happen, Washington's previous encampment at Marstown, New Jersey, and his subsequent encampment at Marstown, New Jersey, were far more Arctic. But what would happen is that Valley Forge would be buried in a week in a snowstorm. And that would be followed by an ice storm. And then the temperatures would rise. And 40-degree rains would just flood the camp. The, the Once again, they didn't know how to dig latrines. The latrines were just dug haphazard through the camp. And uh, all kind well, shit, was just flying all over the camp. The horses who had dropped dead and been dead and maybe a foot or two of ground because it was freezing at the time, now they're starting to rise. The one thing that was an ongoing... Uh, trail through all the research that Tom Clavin and I did. I, I personally read everything George Washington wrote or dictated between July 1, 1777 and July 15, 1778. And I can tell you, Brett, sometimes my eyes were glazing over, but sometimes you just come across a nugget and say, yes, that's what I'm talking about. But the, the, the winter, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, Washington much preferred cold, the previous at Morristown, the subsequent at Morristown. And with this mud, everything that we read from everybody, everyone commented on the stink hanging over the camp like an illness. It just smelled to high heaven. And another myth, as long as I'm on myth, is that, oh, the, Pencil- the previous autumn's Pennsylvania campaign had denuded all the farmsteads of the surrounding counties, Chester County, where Valley Forge was, the neighboring counties, Delaware, Montgomery, Bucks County. There was no food to be had. That's why the Continentals had no food. That is... 100% wrong. In fact, 1777 had been one of the best harvests of the decade for that area. But the surrounding, the civilians, the merchants, the uh, the farmers, continental soldiers who survived Valley Forge, many of them went to their deathbed cursing, as they put it, those damn Quakers. Because there were many religious sects who preferred Dunkers, Mennonites, the soldiers all just called them Quakers, that preferred to smuggle their goods, their merchandise, their cattle, their poultry, their sheep, their corn, their wheat into British-occupied Philadelphia, where they would be paid in pounds sterling and sometimes even gold, as opposed to selling their goods for the, the worthless script that the Continental Congress was issuing. So those are two myths right there, you know, cold winter and no, and no food around, no. And one other thing I'll mention is that it's not so much a myth. But it, it kind of shocks people when I mention it in my presentation. Did, but Brett, well, I'll ask you, well, yes, of course you know because you read the book, but nobody seems to realize there were 750 black soldiers at Valley Forge. Now, they were all freemen. Many of them had been born freemen. Others had been slaves on New England plantations. Their owners were given compensation. And these men were formed into battalions. And they fought ferociously. And the deal was, if you'll fight, that was in their contract for the duration of the war, we will, we will free you afterwards. And Rhode Island was the first state to do this. And when politicians and generals from Connecticut and Massachusetts saw how ferociously these black soldiers fought, they said, we have to do this ourselves. And this was the last time until the Korean War that black American soldiers fought side by side with white American soldiers. yes. There were black units in World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen, but they were all segregated. This was the last integrated American army until Korea. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right, life insurance is a deeply unfun topic because you have to think about your own death when you contemplate life insurance. And most people don't like thinking about death and they definitely don't like thinking about insurance, but actually having life insurance feels great because you know your loved ones are taken care of if in the event you die. And getting that peace of mind doesn't need to be complicated. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. From there, you can apply online and the unbiased advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape. And Policy Genius doesn't make life insurance easy. Whether you're shopping for disability insurance, protect your income, homeowner's insurance, or auto insurance, they can help you get covered fast. 
If you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com to get your quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now, unless you're driving. Don't do that. So go to policygenius.com. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Also buy proper cloth. Finding a dress shirt that fits is nearly impossible. Something is always off, be it the collar or the sleeves or the shirt's just too billowy or too tight. Thankfully, ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier with proper cloth. At propercloth.com, you can easily create a custom shirt size in seconds just by answering 10 simple questions. No tape measure required. First off, not only can you get a custom fitted shirt, you can customize the shirt however you want. Choose from over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, and 500 fabric styles from classic to business to casual to completely customize your shirt and get the style you want. The team at Proper Cloth works with the best fabric producers from around the world and only buy fabrics that meet their high quality expectations. And each one of their shirts goes through an extensive quality control testing. So you're getting the absolute best quality and craftsmanship. Best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit you perfectly when you get it, they will remake it for free. The whole process is risk-free. This is the future of shirts, people. Go to Proper Cloth dot com slash manliness today and enter gift code manliness to save twenty dollars on your first shirt again propercloth.com slash manliness gift code manliness to save twenty dollars on your first custom made to measure shirt and finally by brilliant earth brilliant earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry and the destination for creating your own custom engagement ring simply go to brilliantearth.com and pick a variety of ethically sourced diamonds gemstones precious metals and styles brilliant earth's master's jewelers bring to life iconic designs with exceptional craftsmanship and quality in every piece create your own custom ring or pick from any of their exclusive unique jewelry designs they've also got vintage rings if that's what you want to do as well as earrings bracelets and necklaces and their passion about cultivating a more sustainable jewelry industry they go above and beyond the industry standard by offering beyond conflict free diamonds, along with fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals. Outstanding serves the hallmark of Brilliant Earth, so they offer free shipping and returns on U.S. orders, as well as flexible payment options. And right now, if you purchase two wedding rings, so if you're thinking about getting married, if you purchase two wedding rings from Brilliant Earth, you'll include a complimentary pair of diamond earrings in your order. This offer only lasts until the end of the year, so head to brilliantearth.com manliness to see terms and details. Again, brilliantearth.com manliness. And now back to the show. That's that's crazy. That's a I did not know that until I read the book. So I mean, okay, Washington is basically just having a hell of a time right now. He's faced these defeats. His army is about to fall apart. So what I loved about the book is you describe his inner circle, these characters that kind of buoyed him up. Yeah. And the one the one that really stuck out to me, we started talk we began the show talking about him is Lafayette. I mean, I I knew of him, mm-hmm. but I didn't know much about him until I read the book and I made me like fall in love with this guy. This guy sounded amazing. Like, like I said, he, he was 19 years old. So tell us, how did this aristocratic French kid basically yeah. uh, end up being Washington's basically a kind of adopted son? Well, Tom and I contend in our book, Valley Forge, that the shared core of values that men like Lafayette and Hamilton and Green and Mad Anthony Wayne and John Lawrence, their shared core core of values was the most productive generation of statesmen that the United States has ever produced. We say this knowing full well about Lincoln's team of rivals and FDR's kitchen cabinet, but these men stood out, I believe. Now, don't forget, it it sounds, it's easy to be sarcastic about this now, but this was another era and these were idealists. And there was none more ideal than the Marquis de Lafayette. When he arrived in the United States in August of 1777, as you said, he was 19 years old. He, uh, he turned 20 around the time of the Battle of Brandywine. He wanted to fight. He, he had read about American ideals, and he believed that he could fight in this war and take that ideology back to France with him. And Washington, who for the most part hated the foreign mercenaries that Ben Franklin and his associate Silas Dean, the two American diplomats in Paris, they were sending all these, and I love this word, he wrote to them, I read the letters, stop sending me these popinjays. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> word, it's fallen into disuse. But these were predominantly Frenchmen, and they came over with no English, and they expected to be handed a, a general sash the moment they set foot on United States soil. And Washington just had no use for these people. But Lafayette was different. I think Washington saw some of his younger self in Lafayette in the enthusiasm for the battlefield honors because Washington was very much that way in his younger days uh, during the, with the Seven Years' War, which we call the, the French and Indian War. And 
there was something about Lafayette. And it didn't help that Lafayette was the only man. Washington was a tall man. He was 6'3". At the time when I guess the average height was maybe 5'9". And Lafayette was tall enough. He was the only man that could look Washington in the eye. And Washington, there was a double-edged sword with Lafayette. Not only did he personally come to consider him his surrogate son. Don't forget Washington was childless. He had a uh, he had a stepson, Jackie Custis, with Martha Custis, but he had no children of his own. Lafayette was about the right age for him to have been George Washington's son. And I'll give you a perfect anecdote. At the Battle of Brandywine Creek, when Lafayette took a bullet hole, a uh, musket ball in his uh, leg, Washington sought out the surgeons attending to Lafayette and said, treat him as you would my own son. Now there's that. There's that personal connection between the two. But there's also Washington, as I said before, was learning to become a canny political atom. And he knew that Lafayette was writing back to France about the American struggle for independence, especially to the French foreign minister, the Count de Vergen, who had the ear of the boy king, Louis XVI, would go a long way to bringing France into the war. He needed Lafayette. He was he was walking a tightrope because on the one hand, he couldn't have Lafayette killed because, oh, the, the greatest Frenchman in the United States is now dead. No, we're not going to fight in this war for you. That's what the king would say. And on the other hand, he needed Lafayette. He couldn't really stop him. I think at one point he said, he wrote to, the, to Henry Lawrence, the president of the Continental Congress. He said, I've tried my best. The man lives to be in the way of danger. I'm putting him in charge of everybody. Whatever happens, happens. Let's let the chips fall where they may. So finally, of course, Lafayette's importuning to Versailles, to the Comte de Vergen, and to the king. It did bring the French into the war in February of 1778, although given the vagaries of ocean travel at the time, no one in America would know that for months. So... Um... There was that aspect, uh, that person in his inner circle that kind of buoyed him up and played a political role as well. Uh, you mentioned John Lawrence. You said it's like the forgotten founding father. Tell us about this guy and what role did he play in Washington's circle? He is, uh, well, of course, Washington's my favorite character in the book. I just, you know, Brett, we tend to look at Washington and or th- when we think of Washington, and I know I'm getting off your question. I promise I'll get right back That's to it. That's fine. No, let's get back. Yeah, talk about Washington. We, we think of him like coming out of the womb in his, you know, in the portrait that's on the $1 bill. And Washington was a, a very human man. He, he had his, he had his weaknesses. He had his, uh, he had his doubts about himself. That's why these, these kids, we would call them that he had around him, Lafayette, Hamilton. I mean, they were all, there were 17 of them all living in a three bedroom farmhouse on the Northwest corner of Valley Forge that Washington had made his headquarters. And among them were John Lawrence, 23-year-old John Lawrence. And you're right, he's one of my favorite characters in the book. Lawrence had been studying. He was the son of Henry Lawrence, who succeeded John Hancock as president of the Continental Congress in 1777. The Lawrences were a big South Carolina family. In fact, they had made their money on slavery. Henry Lawrence owned the biggest slave house in South Carolina. John was studying law in London after having received his university degree in Geneva, when war broke out in the United States. Much to his father's chagrin, he immediately rushed back, volunteered his services. Washington liked this man too, and so did Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence became fast friends. They became the best of friends, finishing each other's sentences. And at one point, I mean, during Brandywine Creek, much to, uh, once again, his father's chagrin, Lawrence showed his military ability. And then he was actually heroic at Germantown in the defeat of Germantown. If we had won that battle, I think more people would know about John Lawrence. But, you know, there's so much about John Lawrence's story arc in the book that I could go to here today. But let me just say the reason I call him the founding father you never heard of was because late in the war, when Washington had finally, Hamilton, Lawrence, they were always pleading, release me from my inkwell. That's what they called being Washington's aide de camp. Release me from my inkwell. Late in the war, when Washington had finally given Hamilton and Lawrence a command, Lawrence was down in South Carolina, outside of his, uh, his hometown of Charleston. And he was down in sickbed. With, uh, he was suffering from malaria. And he had heard, he got word that the British were sending a foraging party out of the city. Brett, this was months from the end of the war. It was mere weeks 
before the British would evacuate Charleston. But Lawrence gets out of bed, shaking with malaria, determined to look for a fight with this foraging party. He leads a company of men, and as he's looking for them, a squad of British scouts spots him. They shoot him out of shoot him off his horse out of the saddle, and he's dead. He's dead at the age of 27. It's just, I am certain from everything I've read and know about John Lawrence that he would have been President George Washington's first Secretary of State. But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Let, let me just go back to saying that it was the young men, as Washington felt the weight of the world on his soldiers at, at his headquarters in Valley Forge, at the Potts House, what came to be known as the Potts House. It was rented from a Quaker named Potts. It was Lawrence and Lafayette and Hamilton who buoyed him in his darkest time. Now, you mentioned at the onset of our conversation here about Washington praying in the snowy glade down on his knees. Tom and I, as we write, have come to the conclusion that this is a, an apocryphal story. Washington was not a very religious man. He sometimes attended, like Jefferson, he was a deist. And he sometimes attended Episcopalian services, but he always left before the communion. And there's just, because the story came out over half a century later, it's not sourced well. We just can't believe that Washington went off by himself into the woods of Valley Forge and got down on his knees in the snow and prayed to his God to help him persevere and keep his army together. But that painting, which you know everyone has seen, it circulates so much, Washington on his knees, it is symbolic of how Washington felt that winter. So in that sense, had he been a religious man, he probably would have done that. He just did it in his own way. And once again, it was the youngsters, you know, these guys are veterans. Well, Lafayette's wounded. But it was the youngsters, as Tom and I call them, that really buoyed this man in his deepest, darkest hour. How long was the Continental Army holed up at Valley Forge? Precisely six months. Six months. They slogged in there on December 19th, 1777, and they marched out. And there's a difference when I say slog and march. And they marched out on June 19th, 1778. Well, let's talk about that difference. Like what happened to the army while they were in Valley Forge? Because like after Valley Forge, like things changed for the Continental Army, right? It went toward, like they started winning. So like what happened yes. at Valley Forge that started, that sort of precipitated that? I think you can't put it all on his soldiers. Shoulders, I'm sorry, on his shoulders. But I told you before, John Lawrence, of course, Washington is my favorite character in the book. John Lawrence might be one of my favorites. But my favorite secondary protagonist in this book is the Baron Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Steuben. <laughs> Baron von Steuben to you and me. This guy was as colorful as his name, Brett. He arrived at Valley Forge in late February in his sleigh, pulled by, pulled by a team of coal black Percheron horses he had purchased in France just to make a good impression on. Uh, of course, he had purchased the horses on borrowed money. He was dead flat broke. The sleigh was adorned with 24 jingle bells. Steuben himself had a silk tunic on, a silk officer's tunic, two big horse pistols in his holster on either, on either hip, and his pocket greyhound, Azar, sitting in his lap. He was a big man. He was not a young man. Von Steuben was in his mid-40s. And he was, a, he was an ample man, shall we, shall we say. And in his trail was his retinue of servants and aide-de-camps and translators. He had no English. He was fluent in French and German. But, and translator, he even brought, he brought a French chef to Valley Forge. The guy quit after 48 hours. He said, no, 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 this is not for me. But what really intrigued me about Von Steuben was he also arrived at Valley Forge with a resume that was more doctored up than the Mayo Clinic. Now, I'll, I'll step back to explain that. Von Steuben had risen to the rank of captain in Frederick the Great's Prussian army. Now, of course, Frederick the Great at the time was the most renowned military commander in the Western world. And his Prussian army, although small, was the most feared. In fact, they used to say that Frederick the Great had an army with a country as opposed to a country with an army. Von Steuben had learned under Frederick the Great something that no other Western officer had. Not in France, not in Poland, not in Britain, not in Italy, certainly not in the Continental Army of the United States. And that was Frederick the Great made his officers live, eat, and breathe with the enlisted men. 
get down in the muck and mire with them. All the other armies thought the officers, that, this, were, this was uh, below an officer station. We leave that to the sergeants and the corporals, the NCO. Von Steuben knew how to drill an army. So when he kind of shows up in France and the Count de Vergen, once again, a man, the Frenchman in the middle of a lot of this, introduces him to Franklin and Silas Dean. Now, of course, their initial reaction is, oh, Christ, no, 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 no. We're, we're already getting screaming letters from Washington not to send any more of these mercenaries, these soldiers of fortune over to the United States. But it only took a few interviews with von Steuben. They all chatted in French for them to realize, Franklin especially, this is just the man that Washington needs to turn his disparate conglomeration of militias into a well-oiled fighting machine. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to train. He knows how to drill. But he and Dean and Virginia got together and they said, well, what are we going to do though? He's only a captain. Washington's rejecting the generals we're sending over. So suddenly, Brett, von Steuben's captain's bars miraculously disappear from his shoulder and they're replaced by general stars. And he became the inspector general of Frederick the Great's Prussian army, which of course he never was. And he became a principal aide de camp to Frederick the Great for over a decade, of course, which he never did. But this is the way that they figured they can get him into the States. Later on, when it gets exposed, we'll figure it out then. But for now, let's get him over there. And sure enough, he shows up within his first week at Valley Forge. The enlisted men, the junior officers, and even the American generals, who were very suspicious of foreigners, he's ingratiated himself to every one of them. His first week, he's writing memos to Washington. You cannot have your latrines run willy-nilly through the bread-baking oven territory. you got to put them on the other side of the hill. You can't. Let's grade the roads in front of the huts. There's 2,000 huts they built at Valley Forge. Let's grade those roads and give them regimental names to give the soldiers a sense of professionalism. Within 10 days, Washington had told all his other officers, do not train your men. The training is going to come from this Prussian. Washington gave von Steuben his personal guard of 50 men, chose another 50 men from the states that were represented at Valley Forge, and said to von Steuben, train these 100 men and then spread them out throughout the army as your sub-trainers. So every day von Steuben would take these 100 men out on the break, onto the parade ground at Valley Forge. And the other soldiers didn't have a lot to do, so there's thousands of them lined up in a square, in a square watching von Steuben in action. And sure enough, von Steuben would get down on his rather large gut in the muck, in the mire, to teach them how to read terrain. Or he'd pick up, he'd, he'd doff his coat and throw away his, his riding crop, pick up a musket and show him the proper way to put a, to put a bayonet in somebody's gut and then twist it. The men took to this like never before. And Brett, this is the other, well, one of the many reasons why I love von Steuben. He was a prickler for detail. He was Prussian, what do you expect? And when someone made a mistake or did something wrong or somehow incurred von Steuben's ire, as I said before, he had no English, just French and uh, German. Well, Washington had assigned Lafayette and Lawrence as his translators. In fact, they followed him. He was a Falstaffian character and they followed him around like a couple of Prince Hals. But when someone made a mistake on the drilling field, von Steuben's double-chinned face would get red and he'd start flailing his arms. And and I said before he had no English, he had one word of English. God damn. And he would call <laughs> over to Lawrence or Hamilton or whoever was translating for him that day. And in French, he would yell, get over here and curse for me. And Hamilton <laughs> would come over and a string amid the spittle coming out of Von Steuben's mouth, there would be a string of French and German oaths and curses punctuated by the occasional God damn. And by the time whoever was translating, Lawrence Hamilton, by the time they translated, the American soldiers were doubled over in laughter. <laughs> they loved this guy. And he, and the same way with the junior officers. He, because his uh, rations were not quite as meager as the, the captains, the lieutenants, the majors, he would invite them over to the farmhouse where he was staying for dinner. But on one condition, the clothing situation by the time of Von Steuben's arrival and through March had not improved much. So if you wanted to attend one of Von Steuben's dinners, you had to have no pants or your pants weren't such rags, they were just falling off you. He called him his son's culottes dinners, suppers, his son's culottes suppers. And on the many occasions when 
Von Steuben was invited to the Potts House to dine with Washington and the other generals. He would charm the other generals' wives who spoke French with like ribald tales of the salons of Europe. But all that aside, it should be remembered that the very last letter, the very last public official letter that George Washington wrote in 1783 before resigning as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army was to the Baron von Steuben, thanking him for turning this disparate contingent of militias into a professional army. And that's what von Steuben did for us. So not only did Valley Forge forge the army into an army, but like it did something spiritually too. Like something happened to the, I don't know, the motivation, the drive of not only Washington, but also the, the, the Continental Army. Like what do you think happened there? Was it just like a crucible that they went through and they came out refined? Yes, you, you just said the word. I was just going to use the word crucible. Kind of like, you know, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And don't forget 2,000 men died of Valley Forge, of malnutrition, exposure, disease. I mean, cholera, typhus, they just ran wild through the camp because until Von Steuben got there, nobody knew that personal hygiene or a lack thereof breeds disease. But the 10, 11,000 men, it's funny, historians don't, they say the victors write history. No one could say for sure how many men marched into Valley Forge and how many men marched out. So let's say the 12,000 marched in and the 10,000 that marched out had gone through this crucible. And once again, I don't want, I hate to come off as naive, but there was a burning desire in all these men for freedom, for, for an independent United States. And all they needed was the right direction. And between Washington and, and everyone we've talked about, Green and Wayne and, and Von Steuben, these men gave those enlisted men the right direction. And, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I know I might be jumping ahead, but it's another one of my favorite stories. Or what I like to call it, when they marched out of Valley Forge, in quick step, by the way, having been taught what quick step was by the Baron von Steuben, when they met the British on the sandy plains of New Jersey near the small hamlet of Monmouth Courthouse, the British had their butch and Sundance moment. Who are these guys? This is not, this is not the ragtag, you know, a bunch of farmers we brushed off our shoulders like lint at Brandywine Creek that we massacred at Paoli, that we turned the tables on at Germantown. Look at these guys. They're wheeling in formation. They're spreading out in columns. They never did that before. One of the great myths of the uh, American Revolution, Brett, is of the, you know, musket-carrying Minutemen stealing through a copse of trees or crouched behind a boulder picking off the squared British attack formations one by one. And that's how we won. Now, don't get me wrong. Our Indian-style guerrilla warfare did come in handy many, many times. But if it hadn't been for Avon Steuben, who, by the way, wrote the manual for the U.S. Army War College, and it was in use for 50 years after Valley Forge, if it hadn't been for the likes of Von Steuben teaching these men how to fight like professionals, there never would have been that, who are these guys moment, and if if you want to roll into the end, I, I, there's there's just a great story about the end. Uh, I don't know where we are. Uh, I'm yakking a little no. too much here, and I apologize. Yeah, well, no, you're fine. This has been like so. Yeah, let's roll into the end. So, how did this? How did you? How did? All right. Yeah, how did this end? All right. Well, we're talking about you know. Here comes the army. Here comes the Continental Army, marching to meet the British near Monmouth Courthouse, the town of Monmouth Courthouse, in quick step, wheeling and turning. All von Steuben's doing. Who are these guys? But Washington had made one mistake that day. He had put another general in charge of the attack on the British. And he was bringing up the relief in the rear. The other general, who had been a POW for the last 16 months, didn't realize that the men he was leading were changed troops. He thought he was still leading the ragtag from 1776. And at the first hint of British opposition, he called a retreat. By the time Washington gets to the front line, the soldiers are retreating in an orderly fashion, thanks to the Baron von Steuben. They're not running for their lives, but they're retreating. For the first time ever among his aides, among his close associates, among his favorite generals, they had never seen the stoic George Washington explode. He explodes on the front line, calls over the general Charles Lee had put in charge of the attack. 
What is the meaning of this? You poltroon, what is the meaning of this? Get to the back. I dismiss you to the back. Washington takes over the lead of the attack. But first, he's got to turn his troops. So he's riding up and down the front lines, trying to halt this orderly retreat. He's on this big white charger. It was a stifling, blistering day, over 100 degrees. At one point, the horse just collapsed beneath him, died of heat exhaustion. He takes the reins of another horse, and he's riding up and down, trying to turn this retreat into an attack of his own. By now, he can see across a swale a mile and a half away, a sea of red is approaching. 10,000 redcoats have doffed their packs and they're attacking in a, in, a, in a bayonet charge. The British artillery were close enough that the grape shot is whizzing by Washington's head. A cannonball lands yards from where he's sitting on his horse, splattering him and his horse with mud. And yet he's riding up and down. Will you fight with me? Not will you fight for me? Will you fight with me? His sword is extended in his right hand. He's pointing it towards the sea of red, coming closer and closer. Will you fight with me? And finally, the soldiers stopped and they turned and they answered in unison. And Brett, if you want to know what they answered, you're going to have to read the book. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, Bob, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? You know, I have a website. My co-author, Tom Clavin, has a website. But... It you just can never go wrong. If you went to Amazon.com and typed in Bob Drury page, it would probably give you everything you need. Fantastic. Well, Bob Drury, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Oh, Brett, thank you. I always, I always have fun when I talk with you. My guest today is Bob Drury. He is the co-author of the book, Valley Forge. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at rfxdrury.com, or you can check out our show notes at aom.is slash valleyforge, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.